Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Are you tired of fake news? Are you even more tired of constant cries of fake news aimed at any story the speaker doesn't like? Do you wish you could go back to a more peaceful era of unquestioned journalistic integrity? If so, you won't want to go back to Kentucky in 1860, where politics and partisanship mattered far more than truth and evidence for newspaper writers and readers. Professor Barry Craig has read those papers himself and written about them in Kentucky's Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media and the Secession Crisis. Hear all about it tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio Infirmary on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, where I'm away from the office this evening, uh, mild sinus infection. I'll 
describe the symptoms in detail if you're interested, send me an email. Uh, it's been the worst year for sickness ever since I've been teaching at ECU. Lots of students out, and now I've got a bug too. Uh, but while I'm not at ECU, I'm not speaking for ECU, not speaking for anyone but myself, and my guest likewise only speaks for himself tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. It's April 2018, just past tax day. It's Stanley Cup playoff time. I'm not normally, uh, in, in normal years gone by, I'd be all agog about how the Detroit Red Wings are doing, my hometown team, uh, back in the days of Iserman and Shanahan. But those days are in the past, and so I'm just watching, enjoying the Washington Capitals underperforming. Uh, that's about all that's in it for me. I'm admittedly uh, a bandwagon kind of guy. If my Red Wings team isn't doing well, I pick up on a team that is, and that's the ECU Pirates baseball team. Uh, the Pirates, number 11 in the country, beat Duke yesterday. Uh, again, an action all right-thinking people can approve of. And uh, Duke was number 8, and with ECU beating them, that moves the Pirates back into the top 10. So uh, we say go Pirates to that. But what I want to say before we start the show more seriously about the Pirates is the students in History 5930-5931, the History Museum Practicum course. Uh, this semester, the course has had one project, which is create a history exhibit. We were given, we worked out a, a situation with a local congressman who wanted to honor one of his constituents who had uh, a family of a constituent whose, whose uh, relative had died in World War II, missing in action, flying a Navy plane near Saipan. So we were tasked with creating an exhibit based on a five-inch square box of, of medals to be the centerpiece, but no artifacts, no documents, no other information to speak of. And in the past... Uh, four months since the beginning of the semester, the students in this course have done the most remarkable job of acquiring information, doing research, contacting relatives, finding survivors from the ship, the aircraft carrier that the pilot flew from, going to other states, to museums to find more information, and then creatively writing and writing labels, figuring out the story to tell, arranging it. Uh, and working cooperatively as a team, eight eight students all working uh, on the same page, which is a large group to get together, to work together. Uh, and the exhibit opened this past weekend. There were well over 100 people, maybe 200 people crowded into this house museum for the opening, including a number of relatives of uh, Paul Aaron Parker, the pilot who, who perished in 1944, some Parker family members flew in from uh, as far away as Massachusetts for this event. Some of them had known nothing about uh, their relative until seeing the exhibit or knew very little about him. It was uh, an emotional event, surprisingly. Uh, it, it I, I cannot say how much it exceeded my expectations for what we would accomplish in this course when we started with a single box of military medals and the instructions make an exhibit out of this so i want to congratulate my students and, and thank them for the experience and hope it benefits them in their careers and if you're ever in the next six months or however long the exhibit stays up 
if you're around uh, eastern part of North Carolina, take a visit to Farmville. Uh, it's really called that, not just the name of the video game. Uh, go to Farmville, North Carolina. Ask for the May Museum. It's only open Tuesday and Thursday, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pick the right time. Go there and, and see this temporary exhibit on uh, on Paul Parker and his World War II uh, career. And, and I think you'll hopefully find it worth the time. So it was a great experience. Uh, things like that are, are when you realize, yeah, teaching is the right career. This, I'm in the right place. It was not a Civil War story, but it was a, a great story, and I wanted to share that with you. You can hear great Civil War stories coming up on Civil War Talk Radio in the weeks ahead. Um, last week, we talked about Cynthiana, Kentucky. Tonight, Kentucky uh, press during the war. Contrary to the proposal to go all Kentucky all the time, Next week's show will feature Michael Hardy, a one-time North Carolina Historian of the Year. Uh, his book, General Lee's Immortals, is about the Branch Lane Brigade in the Army of Northern Virginia. We'll hear from him. On the following week, May 2nd, no live show. It's final exams. Time to uh, torment the students of East Carolina University and, and be tormented in return by the stacks of blue books. So no show on the 2nd. On May 9th, Robert J. Cook, University of Sussex, brings us a transatlantic perspective. His book, Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. On the 16th, uh, Thomas Huntington has written uh, a Gettysburg book. We don't have enough of those yet. Uh, we'll see how this one goes over. It's called Main Roads to Gettysburg. How Joshua Chamberlain, Oliver Howard, and 4,000 men from the Pine Tree State helped win the Civil War's bloodiest battle. And on the 23rd of May, no live show once again. On the road, it'll be time for This Hallowed Ground with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I'll be somewhere, probably actually at Gettysburg that very night. Uh, so no live show that week. And then finally on the 30th of May, Kate Major joins us. She's edited John Washington's classic book, They Knew Lincoln. He's also edited some other books uh, we can talk about, but lots to discuss with her on May 30th. So lots going on. Check out www.impedimentsofwar.org. Donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com and find out what's going on on the show. Uh, I apologize for the, the uh, coughing that will occasionally startle you. Well, let's bring in our guest tonight. He is Professor Emeritus of History at West Kentucky Community and Technical College in Paducah, author of numerous books. His name is Barry Craig. Professor Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed your, your run-up here. Uh, I tried not to laugh when you commented <laughs> on the blue books and the double tormenting process there. Uh, I do remember that well. And something else, too, you mentioned Saipan a minute ago. That brought back yes. a, a memory. My dad was at Saipan aboard a really? landing craft infantry, LCI 82. It was a rocket firing ship. Uh, they would go in a couple of hundred yards offshore and fire rockets to cover the Marines and the soldiers going in. And he was there. And you mentioned relics. Uh, I treasure his, his uniform. He retired, from, he left the Navy in 1946 as a petty officer first class. So that well, brought back well, some interesting memories. He lived to be 91 years old, died in 2015. 
Well, 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 his service is much appreciated by all of us. Uh, that many of us from the generation we're in remember our parents. My father served in the 106th Division in the Western Front, uh, and I have some some artifacts of his, and and I know wow. how, how much I, I treasure those as well. So, you know, I, I used to tell my students I thought everyone's dad fought in World War II. Look at me like it seemed that way, didn't it? It did, and of course. These kids were born long after World War II. I was born in 1949. I guess that makes me a classic baby boomer. Well, I'm, I'm about 10 years younger, but still had the same experience. Every, yeah. you know, sure. my dad, uncles, everybody that age had fought in the war, and uh, I, I still recall the first time a student of mine talked about his grandfather being in the war. Mm-hmm. But, his, but the but the war was Vietnam. Right. Exactly. Uh, that was a shock. Uh, then I thought, okay, I'm a relic too. Yeah, um, I'm a relic, sure. Uh, well, let's go back to a, an older war, to the Civil War. What yeah. is this been your main uh, scholarly or personal interest for a long time? Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, in fact, that uh, the book stemmed from a master's thesis I was at Murray State University in the seventies uh, in the journalism department. I got a master's in history. And I turned that into a book, and I got a master's in journalism, and I turned that into a book. So I run out of master's degrees, and I guess I've run out of books. I don't know. Well, well, it's um, so the book is timely because there's so much being written these days about Kentucky, about the borderlands, the uh, uh, the, the 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 edge country between the Union and Confederacy. Why do you suppose there is so much interest today in, in that? Is that's really interesting. You know, for years it's been kind of a neglected part uh, because mm-hmm. after 1862, as you know, Kentucky became more or less a a backwater of the war. But one thing uh, several historians are picking up on uh, is the guerrilla war uh, in mm-hmm. Kentucky and Missouri, especially. A number of really good books have come out on that topic. Um, and for years, I think gorillas were looked upon as sort of a sideshow of the big show. Uh, but these books really point out the, just the absolute brutality, the savagery of guerrilla warfare. Uh, here in the town where I live in Mayfield, it's in the western part of Kentucky, uh, just to give you an example of guerrilla depredations, a, a local Confederate guerrilla band rode into town one night, called a local union man out on his porch, and shot him dead in front of his wife and kids. Um, that sort of thing went on constantly here. There's a story, it was in the New York Times, of a Confederate cavalry outfit or guerrilla outfit, depending on your perspective, uh, rode into town. They derailed the train, shot up the railroad depot, turned dogs on two Unionists, mauled them to death, and kidnapped a congressman. Uh, so it was said that you couldn't go anywhere outside a small town in Kentucky, a garrison town, without uh, risking death at the hands of these guerrillas. Uh, but yes, the state was overrun with guerrillas for, from 1862 to the end of the war. It's also true in Missouri. I think people know about Quantrill and Buddy Bill Anderson and, and the James mm-hmm. brothers. Um, but the, the, the war in Kentucky, the guerrilla war in Kentucky, has not really had a whole lot written about it. And oftentimes, all that was left to protect folks were home guard units. Uh, you mentioned Cynthiana, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Probably that you, you may have interviewed the author of that, of that book about that. Is that who it was? That was just last week. That's right. Yeah, right, right. Well, there again, and he, I know when he touches on the guerrilla 
situation there in Kentucky, but it was it's brutal. But yes, it's uh, suddenly been discovered. I you know I heard you make a comment another book on Gettysburg. My old professor told us in college that uh, more has been read about the Civil War than all other topics in America to put together, and I suppose that's true. But interestingly enough, there's not a whole lot on the guerrillas, and and that's that that hole is being filled. So maybe people just thought, aha. That's something we haven't gotten into because how many books have been written about Gettysburg or Vicksburg or all the big battles? Well, I wonder if there's also some connection to current events that because the United States has been fighting insurgent wars for the last decade uh, around the hmm. world, that there's there's an increased interest in that style of warfare as opposed to that may be. You, you may be onto something there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that connects then with your topic. Um, you're, you write here about journalism, and uh, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but let me ask you, uh, uh, newspapers newspapers are the media in the era that we're talking about. You, the, your book is called Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media, right. but there's really no other medium. It, it, the press is where it's at. Is that correct? That's pretty much the case. Now, there, there were magazines, but... Uh, but primarily we're talking the newspaper press, which consists of dailies and weeklies in the state. Yes, that is correct. And, and also, uh, again, I enjoyed your intro uh, about fake news. The Civil War is the mother load of media bias, uh, as you know. And I would invite your listeners to pick up any newspaper uh, published in the Civil War, and you'll see it. Uh, it was a great time to be a reporter. Never let the truth stand away with a good story. It doesn't exist. Make it up. It's boring. Punch it up. And that's pretty that good. Sounds good. That sounds like a great way to uh, to make one's living. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk about what did get written in Kentucky's Rebel Press. We're talking tonight with Barry Craig, author of Kentucky's Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media and the Secession Crisis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Barry Craig, author of Kentucky's Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media, and the Secession Crisis. We've been talking uh, a little bit about the nature of newspapers in the 19th century, and particularly in the era we're looking at here before the war. Uh, Barry, you pointed out that truth was no obstacle to uh, printing a story, but let me just start with, make our listeners familiar with what papers looked like then. Do they resemble modern papers, color illustrations, photographs? Absolutely not. Um, The papers in Kentucky were all four pages long, and basically what they would do would be take a broadsheet and fold it, which gives you four pages. Um, interestingly enough, the the big news is usually on pages two and three because they're the last pages published. The front hmm. page is largely advertising. This, of course, is the pre-photojournalism era. There are engravings uh, and maps, but, but no photographs. I think that uh, most readers today will be just, would think, God, what, what a terribly boring thing these are. But if you read the prose, that's a whole different story. Um, it's fascinating, the different style. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter for many years before I turned to teaching. And, you know, it's, it's, the idea is, well, assume that your reader doesn't know much, if anything at all, about what you're writing about. So you put, uh, you put explanations in there. They didn't much do that. Uh, and what amazed me about these Kentucky editors, most of whom are not formally educated, they really had a grasp of the classics. They would make references to classics, to, to Shakespeare. Um, and basically, if you didn't get it, well, you just didn't get it. They didn't explain it. Um, I was amazed, again, at, at the, uh, the broad knowledge that most of these editors had of, of, of classic literature, the Greeks, the Romans, mythology. That really amazed me. Uh, but again, uh, there was very little difference between a, a news story and a, uh, an editorial today at a reputable newspaper, there's a wall of separation, if I can use that term, between mm-hmm. uh, editorializing and straight news. And uh, most newspapers try to maintain that. Uh, news stories are supposed to be objective as much as that can be accomplished, human beings being naturally biased creatures. But uh, if it's editorial, it's editorial. If it's news analysis, it's labeled news analysis. And if it's a straight news story, it's a straight news story. There was no such distinction at that time. 
The other thing, too, that, I, that, that, I, that was interesting is that uh, much like modern blog sites, uh, which most people do not sign, although they sign with cute pseudonyms, uh, letters to the editor were not signed either. They were usually signed with things like Sentinel or, or Unionist or, or whatever. These, these, uh, so they didn't require their correspondents to sign their letters. Something else you won't see in a Civil War newspaper is a byline. Uh, you do not see those. So you don't know who wrote these stories. Uh, editorials, of course, are, are, are still unsigned today, and they were then. But uh, I would invite your readers to uh, go to your special collections there in your university and, and pick up one of these old papers, any of them, and you would be amazed at how, how different they are. Uh, another thing, too, is when I say a broadsheet, I mean a broadsheet. Now, I don't know about the papers over in North Carolina, but around here in Kentucky, most of these papers are very thin. They're almost the width of a, of a tabloid. They do that to save on, on, on the paper. And as you know, across the country, newspapers have really dwindled in circulation and in yes. size and in numbers. Um, so I think, they'd be, I think they'd be quite amazed at seeing these papers. So in terms of numbers, were there, were there a lot of newspapers in Kentucky in the era before the war? There were a surprising number. Uh, I'll just kind of run the list of, of the big ones. Uh, we had sure. three dailies in Kentucky in Louisville. There was the Louisville Courier, which was Walter Haldeman's paper. That was Confederate. The Louisville Journal, which is George D. Prentice's paper, which was Union. And the Louisville Democrat, John Harney's paper, which was also Union. Now, you go to Frankfurt, our state capital. You had the uh, Frankfurt Yeoman. S-I-M, Samuel Iyer Monger Major, what a name, uh, mm-hmm. Confederate, and the Frankfurt Commonwealth uh, Union. In Lexington, you had the uh, Lexington Observer and Reporter Union, Lexington Statesman uh, Confederate. Now, what's interesting is Kentucky was, uh, you wouldn't necessarily know it today, but Kentucky was a Union state. It's a, it's a Union mm-hmm. border state. Uh, unionism was about a two-to-one edge. But a lot of towns in Kentucky had competing papers, which, as I say in my book, made the Confederate cause uh, look stronger than it ever was. So you do see that Louisville was a Unionist bastion, very strongly Union uh, city, uh, but you got a rebel paper. Uh, Frankfurt was tilted toward the Union but divided, but you got a Confederate paper. Lexington tilted toward the Union but a Confederate paper, and you see that across. Most county seats had weeklies. Now, the... Uh, the Frankfurt paper, uh, uh, the Frankfurt Yeoman and the Frankfurt Commonwealth are tri-weeklies. They became weekly when the legislature was in session. But again, you've only got three uh, dailies. Now, they circulated statewide through the mails. Uh, the post office department gave newspapers a, a break on that. And something else, too, was interesting, and, and this is a tradition that when I was a reporter w- was still around, and that is newspapers subscribe to other papers. And I remember when I, after deadline, I would go back and to our library and pick up weekly papers and look at them, looking for stories. Now, what they did during the Civil War era was they would clip uh, from other newspapers. Now, you would do this, of course, to support your viewpoint or to say, look at what these idiots are saying. Uh, and they did that. Now, that was also very, that was absolutely essential to my research because very few, very few of these Civil War era papers exist. Uh, mm. The Louisville papers, the Courier and the Journal, uh, you can get full sets of those. The Democrat 
mostly uh, the, the statesman, yes. The yeoman, yes. Uh, Observer reporter, not so much. The Covenant Journal is, is available. But most of the little, little weekly papers are gone. So what I had to do was, I would say, uh, the Courier would have an article, this is from the Cadiz Organ, or this is from the Mayfield Southern Yeoman, or the Journal would have, this is from the Mount Sterling Whig, whatever. And, and that, that's a real problem with them, is uh, you, don't ha- you, the, 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 you don't have it at your hand papers like you would today. Now, you mentioned that the, many of the states or many of the counties are leaning union. But at the same time, uh, a, a persistent theme running through the book is that uh, the the traditional, contrary to the traditional view people might pick up in elementary school, North is for freedom, South is for slavery, uh, North is for union, South is for secession. Uh, these unionists in Kentucky are not abolitionists. They're not anti-slavery. Uh, they're, they're, exactly there's almost right. universal uh, support yeah. of, of uh, Basically, what it boils down into in Kentucky is, well, to go back, uh, as you know, Henry Clay was the hero mm-hmm. of Kentucky, a very nationalistic Whig, the Union above all considerations. So when the war comes along, the Unionists argue basically, look, the South is going to lose the war, and they're going to lose their slaves. If we stay loyal, we'll get to keep ours. Now, the secessionists argued just as they argue everywhere else, the only way to save slavery and white supremacy is to secede. And that's all the argument. My students had a, I taught Kentucky history for years. My students, like you said, North, abolition, union. South, slavery, secession. And they had a hard time coming to grips with the fact. Now, there were, there were the small group of Kentucky unions, they were called unconditional unionists. Now, they were willing to sacrifice slavery to preserve the union. Now, that group formed the nucleus of the, uh, the Kentucky Republican Party. But yes, that is correct. Uh, unionists were, were white supremacists who favored the Union. Secessionists were white supremacists who favored the Confederacy. But you're absolutely correct. That, that's a, but again, my students had, had a hard time kind of coming to grips with that because it goes against conventional wisdom, as you said. It, it does, so in the 1860 election, for example, yep. um, you've got support for... You, well, you got the four candidates. You got Breckinridge, right. who wants the, the Southern Democrat for slavery. Uh, that's right, Kentuckian. You, you've got Lincoln, who's also Kentuckian, uh, Republican, uh, who opposes slavery. And then you've got uh, Douglas, the Northern Democrat, and Bell, the ex-Whig, mm-hmm. uh, constitutional unionist. How do the editors in, in Kentucky uh, fall out on these different candidates? That's a great question. Well, let's go to Louisville. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Louisville Journal, which uh, was a Whig newspaper, been a Whig newspaper forever. Uh, George Prentice came to Kentucky uh, early on to write a campaign biography of Henry Clay. He stayed to take over the Louisville Journal, made the journal the leading Whig paper in Kentucky. Uh, when the Whig Party collapsed, Prentice inva- uh, embraced know-nothingism. And then when the war broke in 1860, he was rebelled. Of course, as you know, Bell sidestepped the slavery in the territories issue and strictly talked about the Union. That was all. The Louisville Democrat endorsed Douglas. Of course, his position was popular sovereignty. Let the people of the territories vote slavery in or out. The Courier endorsed Breckinridge, who favored the expansion of slavery in the territories. Lincoln 
Not a single newspaper in Kentucky endorsed Abraham Lincoln. And uh, there are actually two vote totals uh, for Lincoln in Kentucky, and I'll give both of them to you. Either poll 1,364 or 1,366. That's less than 1% of the vote. Uh, he was uh, the, the, Basically how Kentuckians viewed this election is that Bell would be the candidate most likely to preserve the Union. Breckinridge would destroy the Union to preserve slavery, Kentuckians thought. Lincoln would destroy the Union uh, to abolish slavery, they thought. So they went with Bell. And so Bell carried Kentucky. Bell, of course, was an old Whig and had been a, a friend and colleague of Henry Clay. So that's how the papers uh, came down. Now, basically, most of the Whig, uh, most of the, uh, the Bell papers were unionists. Now, there are exceptions to that, uh, and there are also exceptions. Uh, one of the most interesting exceptions to this was down here in western Kentucky, where I live, the Hickman Courier, which until early last year was the oldest paper in Kentucky with its continual name, same name, the Courier Journal, the Louisville Paper Post, 1868. The Hickman Courier went back to the 1850s. That was a Douglas paper, but it was one of the very first Kentucky newspapers, if not the first, to call for secession. It's quite a, quite a spin around there. But basically, if you go, again, back to Louisville, the Journal, pro-Union, the Democrat, pro-Union, the Courier, pro-Confederate. Uh, and again, you go to Frankfurt, the Yeoman was a Breckenridge paper, Confederate, uh, the Commonwealth, a Bell paper, Union. And same in Lexington. The Statesman was a Breckenridge paper, Confederate, and the Observer and the Porter, a, a Bell paper, and it was Union. So Bell won the state pretty handily. Breckenridge came in second. Douglas, a very distant third, and Lincoln with 1,364 votes, or 66. So so clearly the the support for Union is, is not, as, as you say, the traditional idea that it's, it's based on anti-slavery views. Um, you mentioned the the western part of the state. I wanted to ask you, this is outside the book you've written here, but uh, you've written another book about the Jackson Purchase. The, mm-hmm. the, 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 tell us, just a few minutes before the next break, tell us a little, what, what is the Jackson Purchase, and, and where did it stand on secession? It consists of the westernmost counties of Kentucky. If you look at a map of Kentucky, <coughs> look mm-hmm. to the west, you'll see the Tennessee River. Those counties west of the Tennessee River comprise the Jackson Purchase. That was the only pro-Confederate reason in Kentucky. Um, and, again, I, I did write a book about that. That was my, my history master's thesis. In fact, secessionism was so strong here that in, um, in, in late May of 1861 in Mayfield, my hometown, a group of people got together. These were political luminaries in the first year and talked about forming a military alliance of Tennessee while Kentucky was, was neutral. That would be tantamount to secession. They didn't do it because they thought, well, by August, when we have the state elections, Kentucky will vote to secede anyway. They were completely wrong. Kentucky unionism grew throughout the summer. But that's a whole different kettle of fish. This region went for Breckenridge. This region was Confederate to the core, uh, whereas the rest of the state was the other way. Now, of course, you'll find counties scattered hither and yon in Kentucky that were Confederate majority, but no other region. Uh, and uh, that, that's, again, that's the only part of Kentucky where the Confederates uh, held sway. So the uh, the state 
attempts at first to avoid committing either way in the war. When the yeah. war begins, there's there's a movement yeah. toward neutrality. Who supports neutrality? Kentucky declared itself neutral. <laughs> well, if you if you go back and look at it, interestingly enough, if you look at these newspapers, uh, of course, every newspaper in Kentucky considered Lincoln's election to be an absolute calamity. But even these, these rebel papers, these future rebel papers, said, well, it's not really cause for disunion at this point. But as time goes on, they begin to embrace the, uh, the, the, the secessionist viewpoint. Fort Sumter comes along in April. As you know, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas leave the Union. Kentucky then adopts this position of neutrality. But it's very, very important to understand this is neutrality within the Union. The Unionists in Kentucky knew the longer Kentucky waited to secede, the less likely Kentucky would go out. Lincoln believed the same thing. Lincoln was brilliant in how he handled his native state. He basically said, I'll leave them alone, let them sort it out, and they'll come down on the Union side. And he was right. They did. Throughout the summer of 1861, Unionism rises across the state. You see this in elections to the Border Slave State Convention, to Congress, and most importantly, to the state legislature. Uh, in August of 1861, in these legislative elections, the Union Party, which already had a majority, and by the way, it was the Union Party that pushed neutrality. Uh, the Union Party in our 100-member House, 76 to 24, in the Senate, including holdovers, 27 to 11. Now, the Jackson Purchase elected nothing but rebels. But you can see the Union folks knew, they believed, that if we can just hold on, and that's what these newspapers are saying. We can maintain. We can stay in the Union. And they did. And that's well, basically very, how that uh, came up. A successful strategy then from the, the Union's Brilliant point strategy. of view. On the part of the President and the Union folks. We'll take another short break now. Come back, talk more with Barry Craig, author of Kentucky's Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media and the Secession Crisis. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Barry Craig, author of Kentucky's Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media and the Secession Crisis. Barry, the uh, I wanted to change gears and ask you about the editors themselves uh, of these papers, especially in Louisville, where you have three different uh, daily papers going. Did the editors know one another well? Did they interact individually? Oh, absolutely. In fact, they interacted, shall we say, violently, occasionally. Uh, uh-huh. Prentice, uh, usually, in fact, it was very common for these editors to carry sidearms with them, and there's a really, I guess it's a funny story, uh, before the war, one of the editors of the Louisville Curry was the name Reuben Durrett. And so Reuben Durrett and uh, Prentice got into a verbal dust-up, and they met on a street. And they pulled their pistols and started shooting each other, and they hit a bystander. Uh, <laughs> another time before the war, um, Prentice was walking down the street in Louisville, and an editor from another town saw him and pulled his pistol, and Prentice shot it out of his hand, just like in a cowboy movie. And he says, I do not duel with unarmed men, and walked along. Uh, the, the, another interesting story about, about Haldeman was when the Union forces came into Louisville in September of 1861 when neutrality ended. Uh, it ended down here in western Kentucky when the Confederates took Hickman and Columbus, uh, it was pretty obvious uh, to this brigadier general who was in command in Cairo, Illinois, that the rebels were going to take Paducah. He said, I'm going to get there first, and he did. He took Paducah and took Smithland. His name was Ulysses S. Grant. Anyway, so Kentucky is now on the Union side flat out, and so at this point um, there is a move to, to shut down the courier. Well, Haldeman sends, <laughs> he sends a note to the Union authorities and says, look, if you'll let me keep this paper open, I promise I won't do this secession stuff anymore. I'll strictly be a newspaper. I'll print only the news. I'll print no commentary. Hmm. Well, the Union forces seemed agreeable to this. But do you think that's really what he wanted to do? No. What he wanted to do is give himself some time to get out of town. He fled to Bowling Green and restarted the courier down there. That was a ruse. For an escape, there was another newspaper editor named Andrew Jackson Morey uh, in Cynthiana. In fact, your previous guest may have mentioned him. Uh, Morey was a just a rip-roaring secessionist and uh, was arrested and sent north to a prison camp, uh, actually a prison in Columbus, Ohio. And he wrote a letter to the editor of the Columbus paper and said, I've had a change of heart. I, I repent of my rebel ways. I'm so, so, so sorry I did this. In fact, you were to let me out while well, I joined the Union Army. Well, this editor published this, and what a scoop this was. It was reprinted all over the North in newspapers. The Journal picked it up, and the Journal had been ripping A.J. Morey for, for weeks. So Morey's wife took ill in Cynthiana. He went home to basically comfort her in her dying days. By the time he got there, she was dead. Do you think he went back to, to Columbus? He went to Memphis, Tennessee join the rebel army. So that's a couple of very clever ruses that were going on. And by the way, um, after the war, Maury got into it, had a shooting match with the brother of a Union officer afterwards. This is very personal stuff. And again, if you're an editor in the Civil War era, 
you better be a pretty good shot. You better you better be packing heat wherever you go because someone's going to get you. But yeah, that that's all. That was a fascinating part of this was how personal they were. Now, what's ironic about the career uh, in the journal uh, after the war, and I did talk about this in my book. Mm-hmm. So you see, Prentice uh, it, now he reigns supreme in Louisville. Uh, Coleman's been kicked out of it. He's down there in the South, printing this little paper wherever he can do it. The war is over. Holloman comes home. He restarts the career. Kentucky became intensely pro-Confederate after the war. In fact, E. Merton Coulter wrote in his book, Kentucky Waited After the War to Secede. And guess what becomes the largest newspaper in Kentucky? The Courier does. And guess who buys out the journal? The Courier does. And the Democrat, he buys it out. And the newspaper is the Louisville Courier Journal, 1868. At this point, Prentice is down on his luck. He's got a son, and Prentice, by the way, his wife was a Confederate sympathizer. Both of his sons were Confederate officers. One was killed in the war, one was captured. Well, the captured one apparently was some kind of a narrative will. And so in the Filson Historical Society there in Louisville, there's a place of letters. And and you can just imagine reading these letters uh, where Prentice is begging Haldeman for advance on his salary. He kept Haldeman on as a sub-editor. My son needs this money to pay his farm hands. My son needs this money. So can you imagine these two giant editors who had gone at each other, hammering tongs, and Prentice is reduced to going cap in hand to this guy, begging him for a few dollars advance for his salary. Very poignant stuff. Um, and when when uh, when Prentice died, Holland uh, put a big big obituary in the paper. Um, so. There seemed to be a grudging respect. It was interesting. Uh, Durrett, by the way, was arrested on a charge of treason and was sent north. And among the Louisvillians begging for his release was George D. Prentice. Um, it's interesting. It was almost like they didn't take it personally. But boy, it was personal. It really was. Uh, so you mentioned Durrett being arrested during the war. How far did you have to go to get arrested? Could you just print, uh, I don't like Lincoln, and that was it, or did you have to? Well, here, here again, it, it, it's a judgment call. But basically, what got, what, how Durrett got arrested was, even when, when the Union troops first came to Louisville, Holloman kept it up. Now, according to the story, uh, Durrett was was sort of substitute editing, if you will. He was writing editorial. So he wrote an editorial in which basically he said Kentucky had no allegiance to the Union. Hadn't, hadn't, and there was no way Kentucky should not obey the Union. That Kentucky was, was a, had no, no obligation to the Union. And that was considered over the line. That was treason. And that's when they shut the paper down. Now, Durrett swore he didn't write the editorial. And there were others who said it was some other editor, but they never named the name. So he was arrested and was sent north to, to a prison camp. Uh, but he didn't stay very long. And that's something, too. Uh, when these papers were shut down, uh, most of the editors only spent a fair little, little time in jail. They weren't shot or put in jail forever. But that's when Durrett, yeah, Durrett had, uh, he allegedly wrote this editorial. Again, he denied it, but uh, the Union authorities pretty well figured that he was, he was lying. In, in your concluding chapter, you make the argument that these kinds of arrests were justified, given that uh, Kentucky, although it was primarily a Union state, was not. It was not beyond the possibility that it could be driven into secession. Right, 
And, and of course, this is always, this is the argument forever. And you go to the Constitution of the United States, you've got the First Amendment, but you've also got a treason clause. And the treason clause talks about giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Well, these newspapers were preaching treason against, well, you look at it this way. I used to, I used to do it in my class. I would tell my students this. Look, let's take the names off this. Okay. Let's assume there is a country, and the president of that country has been lawfully elected, free and open, fair election. And there's a part of that country that doesn't like that, and they get mad, and they break away, and they fire on the flag of that country, and they kill the soldiers of that country, and destroy the property of their country. What do you call that? That's treason. And that's my position on that. Uh, and again, but if you compare the experience of the United States to Europe, uh, Tsarist Russia, uh, Napoleon III, France, not exactly free press there. And so, you know, and again, in hindsight, it's 2020, but you have to understand Lincoln, as you pointed out, this is the greatest crisis in the history of the United States, a civil war. And, you know, I, I heard a quote Lincoln supposedly, I never found this quote, but I heard it years ago. Lincoln said, supposedly, I would set aside one-tenth of the Constitution to uphold the other nine-tenths. Now, if he didn't say that, that's kind of the way I think he looked at it. So, yes, I think it was justified in that emergent situation. But you'll notice as soon as the war was over, the press went right back to its pre-war rambunctious self. Lincoln did say something like that about habeas corpus. Am I to enforce one law and let all the others to let right. the rest I, of the Constitution go to That may be pieces. where that quote comes from, yes. Yeah, but, that, I, I, yeah, that, but that's, that's what, I'm, what I'm talking uh, uh, exactly. about here. And again, certainly if you've got – you know, Kentucky was a Union state. There were thousands mm-hmm. of Kentuckians fighting the Union Army, and here these newspapers were preaching treason against the government. Uh, but you're probably right. That's where that came from. Well, how influential was the press in all this? The, the, as you, you'd have a lot of quotes in the book with some really vituperous language, really strong yeah. expression. They they don't hold back uh, don't. On, on both sides. Right. Did this change people's minds? That, of course, is an ages-old argument that I don't think you can ever answer, and that is, does the press reflect public opinion or does it direct public opinion? And if you look at Kentucky, basically the Confederate press, try as it did to turn public opinion around in this state, failed to do so. Uh, Despite all the vituperation, and it was, as you said, Kentucky did not secede. Kentucky was majority unionist. That was reflected in most newspapers. So I will come out on the argument that, uh, well, if you think about it, can you really change someone's mind if that person is hell-bent not to change his or her mind? I mean, what I'm saying is to, to, you have to be looking to change before you're open to change. And so I would argue, based on the experience of these newspapers, and, and again, as I said, the number of these Confederate papers made the Confederate cause stronger than it ever was. But try as they might, they were unable to pry this state out of the Union. The Kentucky went into this uh, secession crisis union, and it came out union. But again, it's I think, important to distinguish. 
This is pro-Union, not pro-Lincoln. Lincoln was hated in Kentucky mm-hmm. to the end in 1864. McClellan won hugely in Kentucky. Um, and that's another thing about splitting hairs. Uh, the Kentuckians, I guess Kentuckians are good at splitting hairs. But <laughs> it's pro-Union, not pro-Lincoln. And they will, over and over again, you see that this is a conservative unionism. It's pro-slavery and pro-Union. And again, my students had a hard time getting a grasp on that. Well, I, I wonder, you know, if you'd told me five years ago, people will be discussing publicly how important it is to understand when a monument was built and the motives of those who built it and to right. recognize the subtleties of all this. You know, I, I, by the time my students get that far, they've already got a B in, in public history. Uh, the public yeah. discourse is up to like a B plus now instead of a D. Right. Of course, those monuments, uh, as you know, were erected during the Jim Crow era. Basically, of course. Say, you know, in your face. This is this is what we're all about. In fact, one of the monuments this is the actually said uh, in honor of white supremacy. Uh, yeah, they're all over this state. And and again, if you come to Kentucky, and by the way, have you ever had Ann Marshall on your program? Absolutely, she was wonderful. Terrific. Ann Marshall from yes. Lexington. Uh, mm-hmm. I know her, and her wonderful book, Creating Confederate Kentucky. It goes into that. All yes. these Confederate monuments across the state. You also see that. And these reenactors, uh, the Rebels outnumber the Yankees 10 to 1. Uh, in fact, years ago, uh, we were down at Shiloh, which isn't that far from me, reenacting mm-hmm. Battle of Shiloh. And one of these partners says, man, if, if the, 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 the numbers lined up like they do today, the Rebels would have won this battle. Uh, <laughs> so you see that. You have reenactors in some of the strongest pro-union counties in this state. Uh, but again, Kentucky was a union state. By the way, the Kentucky legislature passed a law. Um, fine and jail time for anyone who enlists the Confederate Army, aids and abets the Confederates, or flies a Confederate flag. That's what it was all about. And I also like to quote the words of these secessionist papers. We have a few minutes on just what we're, we're, we're just down to our last few seconds, so, okay. so give us a quick one. Real quickly, the Paducah sure. Herald says this. Uh, it begs the Southern Rights Party to campaign, quote, upon the fair issue of secession or no secession, to remain with the abolition North or join the South, to remain a slave state or abolish slavery. Uh, the Colonel Curry goes on to say, it, 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 to poor whites, it says, do you wish to give the Negro the right to appear in the witness box to testify? Do you wish to see the Negro privileged to serve on juries sitting on your property, liberty, or life? Do you wish to be bet at the polls and have your votes neutralized by the suffrage of the freed Negroes? That's what this is all about. But when they said states' rights, that's the right of states to have slaves. Well, the, I, I think the Kentucky's rival press certainly didn't mince words mm-hmm. in, in saying exactly what you've just shared with us. Uh, and I think that would be useful reading for a lot of people today trying to understand what secession was about. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It has been a pleasure talking with you and a pleasure reading uh, Kentucky's Rebel Press, Pro-Confederate Media and the Secession Crisis by Barry Craig. Barry, thanks so much for being on the show. Enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.